This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Amen. What a great, what a great song right before we, we come to God's Word. Speak, O Lord, through your Word today. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, as we're continuing to walk through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we have come to verse 17 through the end of chapter 4, which is kind of all about taking off the old and putting on the new. Paul uses the metaphor here of like taking off an old set of clothes and, and putting on a, a whole new wardrobe, right? There are things to put off. There are things that we are to, uh, to, to put on in the Christian life. So let's look at it together. Ephesians 4, and we'll pick it up here in verse 17 if you'll follow along in God's Word. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity, with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness, in righteous, righteousness and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Father, we pray that as we uh, dig into this wonderful text uh, today, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, that you would equip us, that you would encourage us. Lord, you, you know exactly the, the, the needs in our lives, the places we need to be encouraged, the, the sins we need to be convicted of and repent of. 
the, the, the hope that needs to be given, the, the lifting of a burden that is being carried. Lord, how wonderful to know that you are omniscient and you are aware of all of the needs that are represented in this room and beyond this room as people watch this service today and at any point in the future. It's no accident that we're here today or watching at this time. Lord, you work. You do miracles. You transform our lives that we can go forth and be agents of transformation in this world that needs Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. One of the most beautiful stories of conversion, the new life that Jesus gives. Um, I read about in Laura Hillenbrand's wonderful book, Unbroken, which is not really a book that's even put out by a Christian uh, publisher, but it contains just one of the most beautiful stories of the transformation that Jesus brings. Louis Zamperini was uh, an Olympic track star in the 1936 Olympics. And he went on to serve our country in World War II, was uh, shot down uh, over the Pacific, picked up by the Japanese, and tortured in uh, a POW camp in Japan over a period of, of years. The, the main torturer of Louis was uh, one of the Japanese guards that they nicknamed the, the bird. Well, after the, the war, Louis married Cynthia, who loved him unconditionally, but he was a broken man. He was dealing with what we would now call PTSD and had descended deeply into alcoholism and his life was coming apart, their marriage was coming apart. And in desperation, Cynthia encouraged him to go with her to a, a, a crusade meeting, and it turned out to be Billy Graham's tent crusade that was held in Los Angeles in 1949. And her description of, uh, of Louis coming to Christ that night is beautiful in and of itself, but then even more so, her description of the transformation that the Spirit brought. And she describes what happened uh, as they drove home that night after they got home, and then what happened the next day. Listen to it. Cynthia kept her eyes on Louis all the way home. When they entered the apartment, Louis went straight to his cachet of liquor. It was the time of night when the need usually took hold of him, but for the first time in years, Louis had no desire to drink. He carried the bottles to the kitchen sink, opened them, and poured their contents into the drain. Then he hurried through the apartment, gathering packs of cigarettes, a secret stash of girly magazines, everything that was part of his ruined years. He heaved it all down the trash chute. In the morning, he woke feeling cleansed. For the first time in five years, the bird hadn't come into his dreams. The bird would never come again. Louis dug out the Bible that had been issued to him by the Air Corps and mailed home to his mother when he, believed, he was believed dead. He walked to Barnsdall Park, where he and Cynthia had gone in better days and where Cynthia had gone alone 
when he'd been on his benders. He found a spot under a tree, sat down, and began reading. Resting in the shade and the stillness, Louis felt profound peace. When he thought of his history, what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that the bird had striven to make of him. In a single silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation and helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he believed he was a new creation. Softly, he wept. That's the new life that Jesus brings. And that's the kind of transformation that the Apostle Paul is is talking about in these verses. So what do we see here? First of all, in verses 17 through 19, he's talking about taking off the old life. Taking off the old life. Let's pick it up at verse 17. Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. Now, the words no longer are very telling because most of the people that he's writing to in the church at Ephesus and in the churches in the surrounding cities where this letter would have been read, the vast majority of them had come out of Gentile backgrounds, pagan backgrounds. The lifestyle that he's describing here had been their lifestyle, but no longer, no longer. And, and, he, and, he, and he talks here in verse 17 about kind of what characterized their, their old life, talks about their, the futility of their thoughts and their walk. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. So this was both internal and external. Your thoughts are internal, but your thoughts come out in your conduct externally, in your walk. But they've experienced transformation. It's been an internal transformation of their thoughts by the renewing of their minds, and their conduct has changed. Their behavior has changed. Their walk has changed. Now, in verses 18 and 19, he unpacks more of what their former walk was like. He says of the, of the pagans, of, of the Gentile lifestyle, they, they are darkened in their understanding excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. Now he refers here in verse 19 to the the promiscuity and the impurity that characterized the pagan culture that they came out of and the pagan culture that was all around them in Ephesus and in cities like Ephesus in the first century. He says they gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. In other words, it snowballs. 
sexual sin tends to be very addictive and it just snowballs and it builds and their desires were just out of control. They were enslaved. Now the Christian sexual ethic is in complete contrast to all of this. It, 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 it made the Christians, it was one of the things that made them very distinct in the Roman world of the first century. Larry Hurtado uh, was a great New Testament scholar, went home to be with the Lord a few years ago. But he was probably, Dr. Hurtado was probably the foremost scholar in the world on the, uh, the Gentile culture and, and early Christian culture, like in the, in the first and second uh, centuries of the church. And he wrote a groundbreaking book called Destroyer of the Gods, um, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World. In other words, what was it that made the early Christians stand out? What was it that made them so distinct from the world around them? Well, one of those things was their, their, their sexual ethic. For instance, in the, in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, um, it, was just, it was just expected and accepted that husbands were going to be unfaithful to their wives. Everybody knew it. There was not even an attempt to hide it. But what do we see in the New Testament? Continually, we, we are seeing the New Testament writers get in the faces, especially of men, and call men not only to faithfulness and monogamy in their marriages, but to absolute sexual purity in life and in thought. We see that all over the New Testament. And so the, the Christian ethic just was incredibly different, incredibly distinct from the world around them. It, it, on things like homosexuality, which again, that was also very, very common in, in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, but when you see Romans 1 and many other passages, it's clear that the Christian teaching was that, no, this is, this is a sinful practice. This is, this is not God's, God's plan. One of the most abhorrent things that was super common in the Roman culture of the first century was a sexual abuse of children, uh, it, uh, both heterosexual and homosexual uh, sexual abuse of children was incredibly common in that culture. Dr. Hurtado says this, in the Roman era, the sexual use of children, including young adolescents and also younger children, was widely tolerated and even celebrated but it was the Christians who condemned this. It was the Christians who, who wrote against this and spoke against this. In fact, the very word pedophilia, pedophile, 
was basically invented by the early Christians in their condemnation of this sin that they saw around them. They called it out as being sick and depraved and abhorrent. Something else that was incredibly common in that world was not only abortion, but infant exposure. And this was a practice of simply taking newborns that were unwanted and putting them at a trash heap or some other place, either to die or to be picked up. And, and 90% of the time when, they were, when, when somebody picked them up, they would be raised as slaves who would go on to become prostitutes. And again, it was the believers that stood out in their, their condemnation of this horrible practice. But to show you how common it was in that world, Dr. Hurtado points to a letter, and this is a letter written by a, a Gentile man named Hilarion to his wife. And you know, he's, a, he's away, I think he's a soldier, and so he's, he's off somewhere, and he's writing back to his wife. And here's what stands out about this letter. He expresses normal affection for his wife. You know, his language in the letter, very affectionate towards his wife. He expresses normal affection for their child. You know, he's, he says things like, take, take, care, take care of our little one, that kind of thing. So it comes across totally you know, normal kinds of, of affection from a husband and father. But then Hilarion refers to the baby that his wife is carrying in her womb. And he says, if it's a boy, let it, let it live. If it's a girl, cast it out. Just like it, was, like it was nothing. And again, this was incredibly, this was incre- incredibly common. Dr. Hurtado says, in the, also in Destroyer of the Gods, the practice of discarding infants shortly after birth was so much a feature of the culture of the Roman period that many otherwise caring people seem to have felt little reluctance about it. But, it, but again, it was the Christians who were, who were condemning not only infant exposure, but also abortion. Again, Larry Hurtado says, with abortion and abandonment, we come to a distinct parting of the ways between Christians and the general Greco-Roman practice. Now listen, it's super easy to see a lot of parallels in our world today with the world of the first century, right? So easy to see these connections between then and, and, and now. I mean, we have been told, even this week, that Abortion is reproductive freedom, and most perversely, health care. Health care. We are continually preached at that if we do not accept and even celebrate the practice of homosexuality, then we are just bigots. We've invented a new term for committing adultery. Instead of committing adultery, it's having an affair. Sounds a lot more glamorous. And although 
we have come a long ways, especially in the last few years, of identifying the sexual abuse of children and taking steps to prevent it and prosecute it. There are still many, many voices in our culture, voices that will probably grow increasingly loud in the coming years that are doing everything that they can to normalize pedophilia. Against all of this, the biblical sexual ethic could not be any clearer. The Bible teaches that sex is the good gift of God that is to be exercised between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. Now that sounds increasingly weird in the world that we're living in today. But what you need to understand is that it was really weird. It sounded really weird in the first century. That was not how people were living in cities like Ephesus. It was not. And so these early believers stood out. They were distinct from the world around them. And therefore, they were able to make a difference in the world around them. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15 so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. In other words, in the midst of the dark culture that we're living in, with so many sinful things that are happening around us, Christians, by the way that we live, have an opportunity to shine forth to stand out, to be distinct in this world. And now he talks about some more ways that we are to be distinct, as he talks about putting on the new life in verses 20 and following. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. But that is not how you came to know Christ, Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. So these people have come to know Christ. They have come into the new way of life in Christ. And then he says in verses 22 through 24, to take off your former way of life, the old self, that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Do you see the metaphor here in verses 22 and 24? Verse 22, he says, you are to take off your former way of life. And then verse 24, put on the new self. Change your clothes. (laughs) Change your life. I remember being on a mission trip in Morocco one time, and we had been on a trek in the reef mountains for a couple of days. And so there were no, I mean, we slept in these villages. There were no showers. There was no bath or anything like that. And just super sweaty, super dirty. (laughs) I'll never forget getting back to our hotel um, in the, in the, in the town. uh, And, uh, and, uh, and, the shower that I was able to take after that trick. And let me tell you, this shower didn't have hot water. 
And it was just like a little dribble that was coming down, but it was the best shower of my life. And I remember getting out of the shower and looking over at my clothes from the trek, which were kind of balled up over in the corner, and I, I thought, those clothes are never touching my body again. They're not going in my suitcase with other clothes. They're not going home with me. They will never be worn again. That's what Paul is talking about here. He says, we are, we are to take these things off and don't put them back on. Things like what? First of all, take off lying, put on truth-telling. Verse 25, therefore putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. How destructive is dishonesty in relationships, and really in any relationship? But the, the, the closer that you are, the closer that you're tied with people, the, the more dishonesty hurts. The, the more that you're in relationships where there's trust, the more dishonesty dis destroys trust. And so like in marriage, you know, we are, we're one flesh, but when dishonesty gets in there and it just, it just eats away at, at, at trust, right? Because we're supposed to be, to be one. And what he's talking about here in verse 25 is that in the church, we are what, as we, we've seen over the past few weeks, we're one body, one body. We're all members of, of one another in the church. He said, you're brothers and sisters in Christ. And there should, there should be no dishonesty anywhere in our lives, but like especially in the people that we're tied together with, how, how horrible that is. Take that off, he says. Don't, don't put it back on, right? Put on the, the truth, the, the plain truth, the, the, the simple truth. And then he says to take off sinful anger and put on self-control. Verses 26 and 27, he says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. You know, we, we live in a world that says, hey, just vent your anger. You know, just vent it. What does the Bible teach? Control your anger. <laughs> Control your temper. Ex exercise self-control in your anger. Do not sin. And, and, and deal with it quickly, lest it become like a root of bitterness, right? It says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. It's, it's like an expression that means you, you don't want this to linger, right? Um, because it just gives the devil an opportunity to wreak havoc in relationships, and then he says, take off sloth, put on hard work and sharing. Verse 28, he says, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in, in need. Now listen, nobody could have been more generous than the early believers. You read the book of Acts. I mean, it's radical generosity. 
says nobody was in, in, in need among them because they, they just, they, they, they shared and they just, they just gave so that, you know, that their brothers and sisters um, would, would, would not be in need. I mean, the early believers were radically compassionate and generous. And not only with people within their church, but in the early Christian writings, it's super clear, they were incredibly compassionate and generous and giving to people who were outside the church. But then you also see in the New Testament many, many texts like verse 28. You see it in, you know, First and Second Thessalonians. It's talking about uh, people who were idle and re- refused to work and things like that. You see it in the pastoral epistles as well. It, it's, it's all over because there were people who would take advantage of the early Christians' generosity. You know, people who should have been working and providing for themselves, uh, but who were taking advantage of the benevolence of the, of the church. And so the Bible is really consistent about that. You can't, you can't allow that to happen, because then you're not going to be able to help people who really are in need, plus you're going to be enabling the idleness of people who should not be idle, who should be working. And not only, not just providing so that they can have more, but so they can share more. So the, the Bible holds up a very positive view of work. So ironic, we're coming to this passage on Labor Day weekend, right? But the Bible has a very, very positive view of, of labor, of, 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 of working hard. You know where we find work in, in, the, in the first part of the Bible? Work doesn't come up in Genesis 3, and, 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 and it's, not, it's not there after sin comes into the world. That's not where we first see work. We see work in Genesis 1 and 2, in a perfect world, in the Garden of Eden, God gave them meaningful work to do. Why? Because this is the way that God has made us. God wired us to, to flourish when we are engaged in accomplishing things, in getting things done, right? When, you know, idleness is just kind of like not the way that we're, we're wired to, to, to flourish in life. And so, Meaningful work is a good thing. In fact, not only was there work before sin came into the world in the Garden of Eden when the world was still perfect, I believe there will be work in the new heaven and earth. Heaven and the new heaven and earth is not going to be us sitting idly on clouds and strumming harps. No, we're good. God is going to engage us. And in, in, in meaningful service, right? So that, that is to be held up as a, as a good thing. And it's a problem in our world today. Uh, it's an incredible problem. You know, and we've seen this especially over the past several months where, you know, there are so many <laughs> businesses that are having to, you know, cut back or slow down simply because they can't find people to work. They're begging people to come and, and, and work. And no takers. 
And part of that is probably some bad habits that developed during COVID, but, but part of it comes by our government disincentivizing work, by paying people not to work. Now, we need to understand here, it's really good that in our country we have a safety net for people who can't work, who are truly in need. That's, that's a good thing. But if it gets to the point where, you know, people, are, people who really should be in the workforce, and look, I understand this too, understand. Just because you're not in the workforce doesn't mean you're not working, right? Stay-at-home mom's a beautiful example of that. Anybody who's raised kids understands it's hard work and some of the most important work in the world, right? So understand, just because you're not in the, quote, workforce doesn't mean you're not working meaningfully. However, there are a lot of people who are not in the workforce who should be in the workforce. They, they need to be engaged engaged in, in, in labor. It's just how God has, has, has made us to, to, to flourish, right? And so any time it's a situation where, you know, uh, policies are, are incentivizing idleness, that, that is not a good thing. That's not a good thing for our economy. That's not a good thing for the people who were kind of gaming the system because they were, they were made to be engaged in meaningful work. It's not a good thing for future generations that are going to have to absorb the debt that's being accrued. Uh, one of the reasons I love CAPS, the Coalition Against Poverty in Suffolk, which our church is involved in, is because it's, 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 all, it's coming alongside people in compassion and helping them get their lives together, right? And so that, and being trained for jobs and things like that, so that the whole of life, you know, can come, can come together for people. So put away sloth, put on hard work and sharing. Uh, fourth, put, take off rotten, rotten speech. Put on gracious speech. Verses 29 and 30. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Now he talks here about foul language. No foul language should come from your mouth. A lot of us, when we see that term, we immediately go to vulgarity, you know, cursing, uh, that, that kind of thing. What's classified as bad language. But this word is way, way, way broader than that. The, the word that's translated as foul literally means rotten, putrid. It's used in other parts of the New Testament to talk about rotting fruit and rotting fish. But in this case, it's rotten speech. And friends, that rotten speech is not just it's not just vulgarity and cursing. Rotten speech includes things like gossip and slander and speech that tears people down rather than building them up. 
He says, none of this rotten speech should come from your mouth, but only, only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. Our tongues are to be conduits, channels of the grace of God. Whether that means encouraging other people, sharing the gospel with other people, discipling other people, helping other people in some way, your, your, your tongue is to be a channel, a conduit of God's grace that's spreading his grace to other people, gracious speech. The fifth thing that we see here is to take off rage and put on compassion. Verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Now, we live in an angry world today. Wow. I have seen more anger and rage in our culture like over the past year and a half than ever in my life. You know, we used to talk about road rage. I think the rage, a lot of us moved to the internet. <laughs> you know, and so you, <laughs> you've got people just going off on one another. It's verse 31. Our culture is so, verse 31, bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander, and then the malice in our hearts that all that junk flows from. You could not find a starker contrast between verse 31 and 32. Who are we to be as Christ followers? Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. He takes it back to the gospel. What can make you a kinder person? What can make you more tenderhearted? What can make you more compassionate? What can make you a quicker forgiver of other people instead of a grudge holder against other people? What does that? It's understanding the way that God has treated us in Christ. We did not merit the kindness of God. We did not merit his tender-hearted compassion. We did not merit God's forgiveness. If God had given us what we deserve, all of us would be in hell. But instead, God gave his son who took hell on himself on the cross and died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we can have new life and be characterized by this new wardrobe that we see here. In a world that has clearly lost its way, we are called to be people who by our lives and by our lips are pointing people to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life.
Let's pray. Father, we pray that it would be so in our lives, Lord, that our lives would be distinct and that we would stand out in a world that is so dark, in a world that is so lost. We pray that we would be a holy people, a distinct people, because we know it's only people like that, only people who are different can make a difference in a world like this. And right now, as we continue to pray, I would just ask you, do you know Christ? The invitation is open for you to know him. You can know him today. Repent, turn from trying to do life your own way apart from him and turn to Christ and trust. Trust in what he's done for you, that he died for your sins on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that he is able to give you new life today. Make him your savior, your Lord, your king. And for those of us who are believers, there's so much that is convicting in this passage. What are the sins that we need to turn from in our lives? What are the things that we need to put off? And what are the, what's the new thing that we need to put on? Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace that makes new life possible. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 